Emma and Tom Talk Teaching, a podcast about all things education presented by Emma Thayer and Tom Breeze. Episode 2, Musical Vulnerability with Dr Elizabeth McGregor. Welcome back everybody to Emma and Tom Talk Teaching and it feels like a long time since our guest came on the show and in fact it was Covid times the last time we welcomed Dr Elizabeth McGregor to our podcast. You are now Dr Elizabeth McGregor, welcome, how are you doing? Yes, very well thank you, it's a pleasure to be back. Virtually. (laughs) Yeah, and listeners spotting the difference, remember you weren't Dr Elizabeth McGregor last time we spoke to you, so well done on that achievement. Thank you very much. Yeah, and last time we spoke to you, we were indeed all locked down. Emma was in her house, I was in my car, you were in your house. Uh, We've improved things slightly. We've managed to get me and Emma in the same room, but you are still, is it Cambridge? Yes, Yes. I am still in Cambridge. Joining us from right on the other side of the country. So a very warm welcome. We promised we'd get you on. We finally met uh, that promise. And we would like to talk about the research that you did for your doctorate, which has now started to leak out in the form of articles. And you have done your research on musical vulnerability. So I suppose we should probably just kind of take a moment while you explain to us what what was this thing that you decided to talk about or, or research into and why did you pick it and what is it and why is it important? Good questions. Lots of questions. (laughs) The thing that I really wanted to address during my doctorate was this question of how music in particular has a very profound effect on learners and how that effect can be both positive and negative. So we're all likely to know from our own musical experiences that Music can have very positive effects on us. For example, it might remind us of really happy occasions. It might evoke particular memories or emotions. You know, it might make us cry with happiness or it might make us want to dance. But we're probably all also aware of times when perhaps we find music very uncomfortable, perhaps it reminds us of something that we don't want to be reminded of, perhaps it's your your neighbour next door playing music that you don't appreciate or it's two o'clock in the morning and you definitely don't appreciate it and times when perhaps music feels very intrusive or out of your comfort zone and I particularly wanted to consider how that should affect the way that we teach music, particularly in compulsory educational settings. So in the UK, that's typically up to the age of 13 when pupils have to study music in school. What happens when pupils are expected to sit in a music classroom and learn about music or learn to make music? What happens when that has really positive effects But what happens when that has negative effects as well? And that's where I conceptualised this idea of musical vulnerability. Vulnerability having both positive and negative connotations as we can be receptive to music, but we can also be susceptible to potentially detrimental consequences of engaging with music. And actually, before we kind of dive into the detail of that, there's a really interesting bigger picture point there, which is relevant to us on both sides of the Wales-England border. You know, here in Wales, we're in the middle of a load of curriculum reform in which music has found itself in a a larger group of expressive arts subjects. Over in England, we hear a lot about music getting edged out because of various kind of government policy decisions. But the point that you make in the article, which it's interesting to kind of pause and think about, is the fact that the arts and music in particular gets these really extravagant claims made for its glorious effects on people's well-being you know the idea that it's it's just a purely great thing to do music because it's really good for everybody we've kind of discussed this a little bit on the podcast in the past but what, what were the kind of things you were you were finding there in terms of this this glib assumption about our subject yes there's so much research into this isn't there um just before my PhD, 
the World Health Organization released this huge document and they, it was announced on the radio and that it was discussed in all kinds of different settings about the health and well-being aspects of engagement with the arts. And if you read that document, there it is hundreds of pages and there are hundreds of references and there are studies from all kinds of different approaches. There are educational studies, there are studies by psychologists, there are studies by psychiatrists and neuroscientists, there are studies by sociologists, there are studies by people who are interested in community health or public health or social prescribing, all of these different aspects about why music and arts engagement, whether that's drama or even things like circus arts why all of these things are potentially good for people's well-being and I'm sure that all of us listening will be somewhat biased in this respect we're all interested in um, the expressive arts whether that's music or drama or something different and we we probably do recognize that they are really important for well-being and we can probably draw on our own experiences to to explain why that's the case but very few of the studies that are referenced in something like the World Health Organization's um, summary of these articles very few of them explain what the specific circumstances of arts engagement how it ought to be delivered to ensure that those positive effects on well-being are realized very few of them acknowledge that there is potential for those effects to be in fact detrimental or harmful if the arts are not engaged with in a in a healthy way or taught in a manner that acknowledges where the individuals are at before they begin engaging. Yeah, it was certainly something that struck me, Elizabeth, um, from a drama perspective, because I spend quite a lot of time with my student teachers trying to unpick some of these perspectives around drama being, you know, good for pupils and a safe space in air quotation marks and and some of the issues surrounding that particularly for the teachers and student teachers in particular when they're sort of actually trying to practice in a way that encourages a classroom environment which is a so-called safe space and you know where are the limitations and boundaries of what we can do as drama teachers compared with let's say for instance sort of drama therapists and where you draw the line I think you know without want to, wanting to do them a disservice some student teachers come into the profession you're really with their with their sense of their why why they want to be a teacher really sort of propelled by this idea that they want to do good with this subject but we have to be very very cautious in in that sort of um endeavor um to know what we can and can't do um and also to know about the harm that we can potentially do if we don't think about it carefully so your article really resonated in that regard i'd like to bring us back to this idea of musical vulnerability which i found fascinating and something just a line that i'm quoting from your article which says i therefore define musical vulnerability as individuals inherent and situational openness to being affected by the semantic and somatic properties of music making. And I think we perhaps need to just spend a little bit of time now with you telling us what you mean by the semantic and the somatic properties of music making, if you will. Yes, thank you. So many big words in that definition. (laughs) I explored lots of literature around music both from sort of music psychology perspectives, but also from music education perspectives, sociological perspectives as well. And emerged at this definition of music as having both semantic properties and somatic properties. Now, when we talk about semantic properties, we mean the citational effects that music has. That means the extra musical associations 
They could be things to do with our self-identity. So, for example, I might identify as a flautist or a pianist or a composer or a non-musician or someone that's bad at singing or any one of those identities. Music may also have associations with social identity. So I might be friends with a group of people who like classical music or rock music or who don't really enjoy listening to music particularly. It also has semantic associations with spaces. So because of the way that music imbues space, it can't be shut away. It's porous. It escapes through walls and ceilings and windows. And the space that we're in can be delineated by the music that is in that space. So we might be in the car listening to the radio or out of the car. If we're driving past someone else's car, there will be a moment perhaps where we can hear their music and we feel engaged in their space. And then perhaps a moment where we've driven a bit further and we can no longer hear them. And so that association with their space and their identity is lost. So that's an example of how we can think about the semantic associations of music making. The somatic associations of music making, somatic is a word that refers to sort of our bodies. The somatic effect of something is the way it affects our physical bodies. So it may sound obvious, but sound is always a physical vibration. And we don't often think about it like this, but music always physically affects our bodies because it vibrates our eardrums. And in fact, if it's at particularly loud volumes or particularly low pitches, it can vibrate much more than our eardrums. It can vibrate our whole bodies. We can feel the music inside us. So music has that kind of physical effect on us because of the way that we're embodied and the way that we can't shut our ears from it. When our bodies vibrate with music, that also leads to a sense of mimetic participation so we engage in mimesis, which is imitation. So, for example, when we dance along or sing along to music or even sing along in our heads to music, we are sort of entering into synchronization with that music and potentially with other people who are making the music as well into interpersonal synchrony. And finally, when we enter into that kind of mimesis, the imitation or the moving in time with other people, that's called entrainment, we also end up with this experience of affective transmission. So that's where perhaps in a room there's a sense, an atmosphere where everybody feels the same, even though no one's explicitly communicated the particular way that they feel. So music can make a whole room of people feel happy and joyful or it can incite a riot, for example, because of this sense of emotional transmission, if you like, between people because of the way it affects all of our bodies. So that's, I like to think of it as six different ways that music affects our minds and our bodies. Um, that means that we are vulnerable to it or open to it. And I think that kind of really in-depth discussion of, of one's own subject domain is just so valuable. And obviously, I'm in my happy place while you're explaining all those things. But I would uh, I would invite colleagues and student teachers from other subject domains to kind of really start the process of thinking in that level of detail about the nature of their subject. Just moving on to the whole kind of teaching side of things now. Um, and you've, you've pointed out that in the classroom, pupils could experience a positive receptivity to music or they might experience a negative susceptibility. And I suppose the point that Emma made, you know, that lots of people come into the teaching profession to teach musical drama because they want their pupils to have this positive receptivity. They can probably reel off all sorts of ways in which uh, the pupils will have a lovely time in their classroom. But what kind of things 
do you have in mind when when you're thinking in the classroom environment? Uh, how could it go wrong in a teaching and learning setting? That's such an important question. I think it's very difficult, isn't it? Because especially when we're learning how to teach, we have to make generalizations. We have to say, okay, when I'm in front of my class of 30 pupils, I have to assume that the thing, the approach that will be best for most of them is X, Y, or Z. You have to make those generalizations. Otherwise, you would never be able to deliver something that, you know, within the time constraints of of a lesson. However, I think it's important to be critical of those generalizations. So, for example, relatively recent movements in music education that suggest that pupils are more receptive to teaching about pop music. That's potentially a dangerous assumption because chances are that there's one or two pupils in a class of 30 who actually aren't engaged by popular music. That might be because of a cultural sensitivity. For example, I'm currently working in Birmingham. A lot of the schools that we visit are perhaps 90, 95% Muslim. Some Muslim families will not allow their children to engage with popular music. It's seen as culturally inappropriate. So that may not necessarily be immediately engaging or sensitive for that class of pupils. Another example would be the one or two pupils who perhaps really enjoy a very niche genre of music and who don't identify with the a sort of overarching popular trend maybe they don't listen to the top 40 maybe they're classical instrumentalists who always get a handful of those students and it can be very alienating if there's therefore an assumption that by teaching popular music or engaging with popular culture everybody will automatically do better and have more fun. Now we need to get on to talking about how you went about researching this this area of your own practice and and of interest for you and we know that phenomenology is the methodology that you selected and we also know that our esteemed colleague Dr Viv John had considered it when she was doing her her doctorate and decided that it wasn't the road that she wanted to go down and I've got to say when I was reading your methodology chapter I thought goodness me from an ethical perspective like going into this must have felt a little bit scary because it's just one of those really difficult methodological approaches I would imagine to um, embark on and so with that in mind tell us tell us why you selected it why it was appropriate to make that selection and how it works as a methodology yes thank you I spent such a long time working out whether to whether to go down the phenomenological route or not and it is a complicated methodology. It has roots in very complex philosophical approaches. The earliest phenomenologists I like to think of as they were almost armchair phenomenologists. Their concept of phenomenology would be to to sit down and consider all of the potential phenomenon of music for example so a phenomenology of music would be sort of constructed entirely in the mind that later developed into this concept of sort of human science phenomenology which is where phenomenology has become more popular in education studies it's become a way of engaging with people's lived experiences with particular emphasis on bracketing the researcher's experience or presuppositions. So in my case, this was particularly helpful for investigating musical vulnerability, partly because it's such a an emotive concept that it would have been very easy for me to go into an interview with a teacher or with a pupil and say, oh, 
this is what I think musical vulnerability is like and it feels like this and have you ever experienced it and effectively to put words in their mouth because people immediately go yes oh yes I know what you mean I had an occasion where this happened by using a phenomenological approach I emphasized putting my presuppositions to one side and instead asking for them to describe the concrete facts of their lived experiences. So I never used the word vulnerability. None of the participants who I interviewed, who are predominantly teachers, I didn't use the word vulnerability. I asked them to describe their concrete experiences of positive and negative instances in the music classroom. Phenomenology has this emphasis on on concrete facts, if you like, such that once you've collected those facts from a spectrum of, of people, you're then able to draw those facts together and establish which of them are invariant. So what similarities are there between different people's accounts of a positive experience in the music classroom, for example? What are the things that they have in common? And once you've arrived at those invariant factors, you're much better able to give a reliable definition of what it is that has to happen for a positive experience or a negative experience to take place. And so having done that then, you you found a number of quite interesting things about about how to make sense of this vulnerability. And I know you, you've divided it into the sort of interpersonal, and I suppose all of us who've been music teachers know that those kind of group relationships are a large chunk of the job, managing and <laughs> facilitating those group relationships. But there are also things kind of within the pupil themselves as well, kind of things to do with, with their own personality or their own makeup. So I, I suppose it's a bit of a challenge to do this because you, you could you could do a nice diagram in an article. We don't have access to diagrams on a podcast, but <laughs> can you sort of summarise how you saw the kind of the interpersonal and the personal uh, in this kind of area? Yes, and I will, I'll try and use some examples that aren't in my article, just so, to, you know, then people have got something, something <laughs> additional to, to think about, yes. The bits that were cut out never made it into the article. Interpersonal relationships came up as really, really important in people's experiences of the music classroom. So in my article, I particularly talk about teachers' interactions with pupils and the way that when those interactions were aligned, when they were complementary, that tended to lead, to lead to a positive experience. But when they perhaps entered into conflict, for example, a pupil thinks they've done a really good piece of work, but when they perform to the class or perform to the teacher, the teacher turns around and says, hang on, that's not what I asked for. Why haven't you done this? then what they perceived to be a good piece of music, they've then entered into some conflicting expectations. When I actually went into music classrooms, so this was later on in my research when I entered into a more ethnographic part of my research, this was really evident right from the moment that I set foot in the music classroom because pupils would line up outside they would come into the classroom and there would always be this bit of sort of confusion because a music classroom's a bit odd, isn't it? Uh, same with a drama classroom as well. Probably it doesn't have any desks. Maybe the chairs are in a circle. Maybe it doesn't even have chairs. Maybe it has risers or a stage or something like that. Maybe it has musical instruments around the edge. Maybe it has curtains or a green screen or there's recording equipment or a piano. And immediately, some pupils found that really conflicting because they came into a classroom where perhaps their assumptions of how they were supposed to behave in school were challenged. And so their teacher might ask them to sit down and be quiet and 
behave as they would in a math lesson or a science lesson. But then there was also this expectation that at some point during the lesson, they would pick up an instrument and make noise or they would work with their groups and they would go out and work in a practice room. So all of these sort of conflicting expectations as to how to act in the music classroom and what would constitute good behaviour, but also good music making. So when to be noisy and when to be quiet and when to be musical and when to be experimental, perhaps. All of these things had a really significant impact on whether pupils were feeling receptive to the music making that they were engaging in or whether they were feeling susceptible or confused, basically. So that's an example of the interpersonal relationships that affected pupils' vulnerabilities and teachers' vulnerabilities as well. The more personal side of that, and this is, for some pupils, this is where conflict began to occur. I found three recurrent themes. The first one was basically to do with different people's personalities. It sounds like a really obvious thing and it affects every lesson in school. Different pupils will have different personalities. You have some extroverts, some introverts. Different people will struggle with different things, will excel at different things. Many of the teachers that I spoke to described how this was potentially really difficult to negotiate in the music classroom where there's a particular emphasis on doing group work. When I went into the particular school that I worked in, I closely observed four students who had been put into a random group together, two boys, two girls. And that was a really fascinating, just the observation seeing, for example, there was one girl who her peers considered her to be the most clever. She also had music lessons outside of school so she was considered to be the most musical however when they were trying to play music together it was obvious from my outsider perspective that there was actually another boy in the group who had a much more secure sense of rhythm and musical structure even though he had no prior musical training so there were these sort of difficult relationships between oh well this girl is is confident and clever and musical and therefore we expect her to be the leader but then perhaps other students who don't think of themselves as musical or perhaps are more introverted but actually have a lot of of musical wherewithal to offer the group so personality was a really important influence The second important influence, which I might just have to remind myself of... Musical differences. That was it, thank you. Again, this is partly to do with with preferences. Who likes what? Who who learns what? So in that group of four students, oh, well, this girl learns the piano. So she must be able to compose our piece for us. This boy really likes the drums, so he's going to play these instruments. This child doesn't identify as a musician. Oh, miss, I can't play music. That kind of child. And negotiating those different roles or those particular musical preferences, whether, oh, I want to perform like such and such, this famous musician or that famous musician... That was something that also had a really significant influence on vulnerabilities. The third factor that I unexpectedly identified was to do with neurodivergence. So five of the teachers that I interviewed, independently and without prompting, specifically referred to pupils that they taught who had autism or other neurodiverse characteristics who either found music particularly positive they were particularly receptive to to music making or they found the music classroom a particularly difficult place to be 
in many instances, this was partly because those neurodiverse characteristics could often exacerbate potential um, relational conflicts. Perhaps they found it more difficult to negotiate expectations in group work, for example, or they had particular behaviours which maybe other students found challenging to, to accommodate. So those particular characteristics did seem to have mean that musical vulnerability was heightened in those circumstances and that was that finding was reinforced by several of the teachers that I interviewed and then from kind of thinking of it almost as as a sort of static situation in our classroom of course any of us have been in the classroom know that that would be (laughs) very far from the truth there's then in your article a kind of really dynamic uh, diagram which kind of explains how these things can shift over time you know that the conflict can move people towards a much more negative mindset around the subject but but approaching these things with resilience can lead them to a much more positive approach and the really eye-catching one from me and the one that you you very uh, cannily put in the abstract was the idea that pupils can be left with a sense of profound resignation about the subject so do you want to just kind of explain for the listeners who might not have your diagram in front of them what's going on when these things start kind of shifting and moving around in the classroom so I guess this might be of particular interest to teachers who might be having a bit of an impact on those movements yes and it can be so difficult as a teacher can't it if you're coming into particularly maybe a year eight or year nine class maybe you've never met them before maybe it's your your first year of teaching maybe it's even you're on a placement during your pgce and within the first couple of weeks you've got a handful of students who are like yeah but miss i don't like music i'm definitely not going to take music for gcse They've basically checked out of of the class already. I think it's a common experience that that year nine in particular can be a very challenging year group to teach for that reason. And that really struck me how it can often a series of repeated negative experiences, whether that's the cumulative buildup of, oh, well, you're not musical or the assumption one of the teachers that I observed regularly during my research often divided up the class according to the pupils who could read sheet music and the pupils who couldn't read staff notation and even though she was careful to explicitly state that there was no advantage or disadvantage to being able to read music or not, there was an implicit assumption that those who couldn't read staff notation were not as good musicians as those that could. And if you've experienced that repeatedly for two years or three years or throughout primary school, even if you've not explicitly been told you are not a musician, by the time you get to year nine, there's almost certainly that sense of of deep resignation. I'm not a musician. You know, Miss doesn't think I'm a musician. So I can't possibly do more music. However, I was encouraged to see um, instances of teachers who perhaps had students who were resigned to the fact that they perhaps weren't very good at music or they didn't like music they hadn't had any positive experiences of of classroom music making who perhaps then embarked on a topic that did really resonate with them so one example would be a pupil who was very much um, a mathematician he was into science and maths and logic and chess and these kinds of things and he really turned around his attitude to music making when doing a project about um, theme and variations because working through ideas like how do I use my theme in retrograde or in inversion suddenly engaged with aspects of his learning that he was really invested in 
And suddenly classroom music making became something that he could relate to, something that he could actually improve at, um, that resilience and strengthened by the compliments and the support of his teacher meant that his previous susceptibility was transformed into a sense of receptivity. The same was true of, I talk about a project where some year nine pupils were learning about grime music and that was their choice of genre and their teacher even let them take apart a school drum kit to to create their own grime music and to create their own um, sound effects and just the fact that they were allowed to do this and that their teacher had he hadn't sanctioned that he hadn't said oh no grime music is about gangs and has swear words in it and therefore we cannot learn about it he in fact said yes it does have those connotations but actually this is what my pupils are engaging with outside of school and so we should be engaging with it as a legitimate means of music making and again that transformed that sense of susceptibility into a really invested sense of of receptivity and a desire to continue engaging with music making in the longer term and of course in a lot of the examples that you've just given the teacher really does make a difference mm. and something that struck me when I was preparing for um this podcast I went back and listened to the earlier episode we did with you and and I remember thinking at that time when I read the other two articles of yours that we reviewed in that episode was something that you do really well um, as a researcher is that you've obviously got a lot of academic rigor to the research that you conduct but there is also a very very clear idea of the classroom teacher in all of your work and what the takeaways might be for them and Something that struck me about this article was the subtleties of differentiation that you point to. And I, and I did have a, I, I was, it got me wondering, um, it got me wondering about subject knowledge and expertise and differentiation and whether or not a non-subject expert can achieve that what you call proactive differentiation in the music classroom in the same way I mean an example being Stephen um, which is obviously a pseudonym that you give for an autistic pupil in the study who was tasked with getting involved I think it was Gamelan and the teacher noticed that he really wasn't getting on with this particular musical instrument that he'd been given and then had the sort of uh, the, the the notion to give him a slightly different musical instrument a, a really sort of specific choice and it changed his his openness his sort of yes. receptability and so what are, what is your opinion on that you know does it does it take a really expert music teacher to differentiate in the subtle nuanced ways that you've identified in this article um in the long term I think yes it does Particularly, I was looking at secondary music education. So the advantage being that all of these pupils did have specialist music teachers, even though, for example, that the teacher of Stephen was not a gamelan specialist. She did have sufficient subject expertise and understanding of his particular needs as an autistic pupil to work out which aspects of the instrumental playing he was struggling with and which aspects he was excelling at. However, having said that, since finishing my doctorate, I've done lots of primary school-based research where very few teachers um, have that specialist expertise. And I think some of the most striking findings we've done a lot of work with classroom teachers who are working alongside music service instrumental teachers in whole class ensemble tuition and particularly in working with students with additional needs who may need adapted instruments or additional equipment so ear defenders or instrument stands or 
wrist straps for their bows for playing the violin or the cello, similar things like that. And something that many of the teachers, classroom teachers and instrumental teachers engaged in these projects have been struck by is how little musical knowledge is required to make that cool as to what instrument would be most well suited to a pupil. So often a pupil's classroom teacher is in the best possible place to know their their strengths, the things that they're really good at, the things that they perhaps struggle at more. And they only need very little musical experience to make a differentiation in the learning provision. So if a teacher knows that, for example, they have a pupil who has ADHD, who finds it difficult to concentrate and often drops equipment perhaps or maybe they have something like dyspraxia their coordination is less good a classroom teacher can make a really obvious call such as this pupil would benefit from having a stand that their instrument is attached to so that if they drop it or they're trying to swap hands and their fine motor skills don't quite work they're not going to break their instrument And a tiny, tiny adaptation like that can transform a pupil's experience. They might not go on to become a professional trumpet player because they were given a trumpet stand in Key Stage 2, but they might go on to secondary school feeling like, yes, I did learn to play the trumpet and actually it was fun and it wasn't alienating. Well, that's a really important takeaway for particularly new members of the teaching profession, but I guess also Mm. uh, serving ones who we always need to be reminded about this from time to time. I'm just thinking now this might end up as a bit of a left field question and feel free to, (laughs) you know, repel this question if you don't like the way it's going. Uh, We're recording this in the summer, but it's going to come out quite early in the new academic year. We're going to have some pretty new members of the profession that we're going to be working with here on the PGCE. There are two kind of really big picture things I took from from this, I suppose. One is this danger of having really glib ideas about what your subject can do Mm. and, and not knowing the flip side. And the other one is that point that Emma made, which is that pupils could have really entrenched ideas about how they relate to a subject and a really big kind of force to move that around is what the teacher does. Um, opening this out a little bit so that we're not just geeking out about music, you and me, the whole time with uh, <laughs> drama as well. I'm thinking we're going to have people from all subjects. And this is this is relevant to all subjects, I think, and particularly that people have very entrenched ideas in relation to, for example, whether they can do sport or, you know, girls in particular and science and technology and, and boys and English and, you know, all sorts of people and maths. You know, these, these things are not just uh, music things. I suppose this must have must have struck you at some point, some of this stuff in, in your music um, context, and this set you off on this journey. Our student teachers are going to be in this really complex classroom environment, and some of these things are going to be going on in front of them. Do you have any tips for them about how they should think, what they should do, how they should get off towards this journey of actually having a nuanced view of their subject and how they can bring their pupils along with them in in kind of healthy approaches to it no matter what subject they're in yes I think my primary recommendation would be slow down and don't underestimate your power as a teacher I think so often and I know from teaching in the classroom the pressure's on we have a lot to get through that you know curriculum content is massive there are assessments to prepare for all kinds of things as a teacher you're always multitasking you're teaching one class but you're probably thinking about the class that you taught before that you're probably half planning a lesson in your head for the class that you're teaching after lunch you're probably also thinking about oh I need to set up the classroom or the school hall or get out the equipment for the 
lunchtime club that I'm running, or you always, there are a thousand things going on. And I think I would strongly recommend make it your business from day one to slow that down, to consider each decision that you make, to consider each thing that you say. You can say something that is just an offhand comment, like you can't read staff notation, so you shouldn't really be playing the piano. You might not mean that in an offensive way, but that student could remember that for the rest of their lives. My teacher, when I was 12, said that I couldn't play the piano, that I wasn't allowed to play the piano. Or if you think of the classic sports example, we probably all remember that instance of being picked last for the team. You know, it it stays with you for your whole life. So I think don't forget that. Remember that you you could have that effect on a on a pupil and therefore slow down the pace of what you're teaching. When a pupil asks something or endeavours to do something, maybe playing the piano, even though they have never played the piano before, think about how you respond first. If if you are going to tell them not to do it, think about how you say that. Are you making a judgment on their ability or their character or their identity? Or are you reasoning with them about the nature of different musical instruments? Are you going to let a situation arise where perhaps the same two or three pupils are always picked last to be in the team or to be in a particular group? Or are you going to negotiate your lessons so that that doesn't happen? You have the power over that. Nobody else does. So make sure you take the time to make wise decisions. And I think we're episode two of season six and you've won the golden quote of the podcast award already. It's absolutely <laughs> top stuff. And I think we'll be uh, we'll be piping that down the ears of every single student we mm. work with next year. Thank you so much for that in-depth discussion about your work, uh, which is just absolutely fascinating. I think everybody should read it, music or not. We're going to move on to the short slots now, at which point I fess up and say that I actually remembered to ask you about your contribution to the short slots approximately an hour and a half ago um, and therefore we're going to uh, we're going to relax the rules a little bit and Emma's going to put me down as being to blame for this you've got something to read and something to listen to rather than something interesting and something to try and that you're absolutely allowed that now after uh, that last answer which one would you like to give us first you can choose let's go with something to listen to because I think it links quite well to um, what we were just talking about. I recently listened to the BBC podcast called Finding Britain's Ghost Children. It's available on BBC Sounds. It starts with the premise of where are the children who are not regular attenders at school? So either those who aren't on a school register or who have very low attendance rates. And it basically explores the the social role of, of schools, of individual teachers, of social services in pupils' lives, especially pupils from very challenging or deprived backgrounds. And it, it almost made me cry. It, it makes you want to... It reminds you... Or I hope if you listen to it, it will remind you why you are a teacher and remind you just what a huge impact you could potentially have on a child's life, even if you never see it come to fruition. I will sit and be having a listen to that. I'm a big fan of the podcast and that's not one that I've listened to. So thank you for that, Elizabeth. So good. (laughs) Such a good podcast. Sad, like, oh, heart-wrenching. But um, such such a good listen. Thank you. Um, And I believe we've got a reading recommendation next. 
yes this is a little bit more um academic this is maybe for the the music um teachers who want to geek out this is a book that was published in 2022 called trauma and resilience in music education haunted melodies and it's a relatively short academic book a selection of essays by different authors mainly from north america about trauma and the way that we deal with it in the music classroom trauma informed pedagogy has become quite it's sort of trending particularly in the US we've been a bit slower to pick up on it in the UK but it's a really insightful read about particularly about the ways in which music and other expressive art subjects engage with memories um sometimes traumatic memories and how to avoid retraumatization in the music classroom but also ways in which music education can begin to to overcome some of those particularly detrimental things that will have occurred in some people's pasts wonderful and uh, that's a, a pair of great recommendations i should also point out since you're down the line and can't see us that uh, when you mentioned music teachers who wanted to geek out i got a look across the microphone from emma that spoke absolute <laughs> volumes <laughs> no 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 i well actually the last contribution you just made has got me thinking i've been wanting to do a session and i i might commandeer some support from tom on this in the future about mm. the sort of the ethics of drama teaching yes and I think mm. that that's a really useful recommendation that I'll certainly be getting my hands yeah. on um yeah because I, I you know there are no quick or easy answers to it and a session isn't going to tackle it but just to get the conversation started yes. um I think yes. it's important and in the vein of um uh emancipatory knowledge which is something mm. that you talked about in your previous episode you yes. know question everything consider everything mm-hmm. carefully um, and make wise choices i'm certainly inspired yes. by this episode elizabeth to make some changes to my own practice so thank you for everything you've given us today oh thank you for for speaking with me well, we wish you all the very best um, for your future endeavours. And um, we know that you've got a, a book to get on with writing <laughs> amongst yes. other things that you've got going on. So so very best of luck with, with everything you've got going on over the next academic year. And um, we will have you back, no doubt, <laughs> in future to give us some more really interesting things to think about. So thank you for your time and good luck, Elizabeth. Thank you. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. And that's us done for another episode, which I hope you've enjoyed. And uh, as ever, we'll be back with you in two weeks' time. You've been listening to Emma and Tom Talk Teaching, a podcast about all things education, presented by Emma Thayer and Tom Breeze. The special guest this episode was Dr Elizabeth McGregor from Birmingham City University. Thanks to Elizabeth for joining us down the line today. Podcast artwork is by Beth Blandford and the music is by Cameron Stewart. You can find us on Twitter at TalkTeachingPod and Elizabeth is at E.H. McGregor. We'll be back in a fortnight with something else interesting. Until then, take care and enjoy teaching. Enjoy teaching.